This podcast comes to you from the Wondery land. Thank you to elders past, present and emerging. We are privileged to attend school on your lands. Hi, thanks for tuning in to Keeping It Individual at Yarra, Yarra Valley Grammar's individual program department's podcast. Each term we feature a conversation related to the learning needs of students at Yarra. Hope you will like this term's episode. Hi everyone, and welcome to Term 2's episode of Keeping It Individual at Yarra. In this episode, I have the great pleasure in chatting to Dr. Samantha Hornery. Samantha is a trained primary school teacher and has a PhD in effective reading instruction. She is currently an executive manager at Learning Links, a not-for-profit organisation in New South Wales, where she supports unique learners to realise their full potential. She has supported countless families at all stages across the school spectrum in working with schools to support their child's unique learning. And today, she is very kindly sharing her valuable insights into how we can best work collaboratively with these families. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Here's Sam. Hello and welcome, Sam. Thank you so much for joining us on our school podcast. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. I'm very excited to explore this topic with you today because obviously we all acknowledge that working with our families is incredibly important. But to start, I'm wondering if you could maybe tell us all a little bit about yourself and your extensive experience of working with families of unique learners. Yeah, of course. Look, I trained as a primary teacher in the late 90s, but I just knew so early in my degree that my real interest was in the kids in the classroom who just didn't get it. And so I began my career supporting learners who learn differently, who need many different ways to understand and and feel confident in learning. And I've just been so fortunate to be able to work in schools, in classrooms and support roles at universities, supporting teachers who do the great work that we all do um, at Learning Links in Sydney, where we teach children, their families and teachers um, to be successful at school. And throughout all of those things, I have been and am still a tutor. And I coach, you know, I've coached hundreds of children um, in that time. And I just can't imagine doing anything else. It's, you know, a great privilege to be side by side with these families and children as they navigate um, schooling to then find, find their success once they get out of school. Absolutely. And I have had the absolute pleasure of hearing you talk before. Um, And I know your passion in this space is just bubbling and um, which is something, a reason why I really wanted to chat to you today. Um, Now, I think everyone at Yarra would acknowledge that working in partnership with these families is really important. But from your perspective and all that experience, Sam, why is it so important that we really make a huge concerted effort to get that collaboration right with these families? Well, I think firstly, it's just that we can't do it on our own. Um, Nobody is an island here. At school, teachers have got fantastic training and experience in teaching their learners of different ages, with different strengths and challenges. But even the very best of us only know so much. Parents will always know their child better than anybody else. They know things that we as teachers are never going to know about their child and their family and the experiences that they've had. They have a history. They know what worked before, what hasn't. They know how their child ticks all day long. Individually, we can all try to do it on our own and we will get success. Um, But when we pool our resources, the teacher knowledge of children learning and development, 
alongside parents' genuine knowledge and love for their child, this is where the power kicks in. Together we're better and our learners are going to be supported in a really consistent way. And look, we just, we waste time trying to do it on our own. So mm-hmm. the partnership may feel like it's taking time sometimes, but but it saves us time in the end. We don't need to learn things on our own because the families have got this incredible knowledge of their child. And when we get it right, it's gold, isn't it? It's gold for the child in particular, because that, as you know, someone working in a school, that is our number one priority. But when it is working, it is just beautiful to see. Now, I don't mean to, I am absolutely not wanting any stereotyping of any family because I think, you know, every family is unique in their own way. But from your experience, do you see any sort of traits amongst families of these children with some learning difficulties? I know that that's a a tricky question to answer, but is there any kind of common patterns that you might see amongst this group? Look, it is a tricky question because you do find yourself sort of popping them, popping families into buckets a little bit. Mm. I think what is common about every family is they all want what's best for their child. And they all want to know that the person who's working with their child is there with them um, to do that. But I have to say, I think that's where the similarities end. You know, Mm. some, some of our families come to us with ample resources and the solutions. They've already found solutions they'd like to try and they come with the capacity to be there with us every step of the way. Others are going to want to be there with you, um, but they don't have. They don't have those solutions and they don't have the resources to do what's next. Um, Sometimes you'll have families who withdraw because of their own family history and their own really poor experiences at school. Um, Often those traits of unique learners are are hereditary and they exist in those families. And when you've got a family who, a, a parent, who has had a really terrible time at school, um, they are terrified to walk back in and work with you. They want what's best for their child, but they don't want to be there with you um, because it just brings up so much bad memories for them. So, you know, it is a little bit of a minefield, I think, and I think making those assumptions about where they fit and and how they're going to approach is probably where we, we trip up. Um, so I think the most common trait is that I've never met a family who doesn't want what's best for their child. And yeah. if you both start in that place, um, all of the things that come next um, are possible. Mm, absolutely. And I think seeing any of those perhaps little challenges that do crop up as an adaptive reaction to something that's happened in the past but still coming from a place of wanting the best, I think that's a really important thing to hold into in our minds for sure. Now I've got a few, I guess, little scenarios that I'd love to explore for you, but I know um, one that, is a really tricky scenario that often um, we chat about at school is perhaps we have a little one in the classroom who is learning uniquely and we need to raise that initially with a family. And this might be a little one in ELC uh, or in our junior primary or even perhaps a student that has come to us um, in year seven and nothing's been raised in the past and we have that initial conversation to have with the family. Do you have any tips for us on, on how to navigate that potentially quite challenging conversation. I do, I do. And look, I'm a teacher and I know what it's like to be a teacher. And as teachers, we like to be prepared and we like to be in control. And you might think that my answer here will be all about what teachers can do to prepare and say to be ready for that meeting. 
But there's actually, there is an important step here that honestly will make or break anything that you're going to do from here. And that is actually to listen and to, to really listen to that family. The, there is, I don't think there's any other way to start that conversation with how is your child going mm-hmm. and then sitting back in your chair and really listening carefully. Because what you're listening for is how that family identifies and represents their child. They could start with language about my ADHD or a whole family has ADHD. My child's a brilliant artist and they have ADHD. Right through to my child's been diagnosed with something and I don't want them to know. Or my neurodivergent child or our family is neurodivergent. We're a strengths-based family. We don't believe in labels. There could be a trillion things in between that. But when we go to have those conversations, I think as teachers, we begin by preparing the things we want to say. And that conversation is made or broken in the first few words that you say. And so rather than going in with your planned preparation, it really is how is your child going and listening for that language that enables you to have a conversation because it is the diff- the conversation is difficult more so because of the way we represent it. So when we go in with, uh, I suppose, a, a negative view or we go in with labels and that's not what they're wanting to hear, they automatically can't hear anything that we're going to say from there. So that initial part of listening, you know, how do you have the difficult conversation? There's no question. It's always going to be difficult. We're raising something that has the potential to be really difficult for that family to hear and possibly really distressing for them. But the chance of success in that conversation all rests in the language that you're going to use to talk about the things that you are seeing. And you can't plan that. You have to hear the family to get a sense of how they're going to do that. Um, I suppose the only other thing I would say around that is it is always easier to have that conversation once you've met the family a few times and you've you've got a bit more of a sense of them, if you're trying to have that conversation at the beginning of the year, just try and chat to people that have worked with that family before to get a little bit of a sense of the best way to approach that, that family. Because, um, look, it is hard. And so, you know, you hopefully in that conversation you're talking factually about things that you see and things that you're worried about um, and ways that you'd like to work forward with that family. But the the best way for that conversation to go forward and be the least difficult it can be is to really sit back in your chair and listen to that initial um, description from that family because until you have a shared language about how they want to speak about their child and how they want to speak about the path forward, um, you have the You've got nothing. <laughs> You've got nothing. You really yeah. do. You've got nothing. And all you have the potential to do is to actually just get it wrong, you mm. know, to, because you're going to say something that they can't hear, they bristle, and then that's mm. it. And then the stakes that- are high, aren't they? Because if that does happen, there's a lot of work to break that down, isn't there? There so is. The stakes are high in that meeting. Look, there is. And, and, you know, I think it's also what I would say is that, you know, I'm sorry is a really powerful 
phrase. And so when you're having that conversation and you slip up, you know, and you slip up because you'll have be working with many families and they'll all be a little bit different and they may like the label and you, you haven't used it or vice versa. The minute you catch yourself doing it, just go, I'm sorry, recorrect and keep going. Mm. You know, it's, it is going to happen and you are going to slip up because there's so much you're taking on in that conversation. Um, but it actually, the conversation is made more difficult when we're speaking from a different hymn book. Um, so until we can get that shared language, until we've heard the language that the family is ready to hear, um, we they can't hear us. They can't. Mm. Mm. So that kind of leads me to think of maybe situations where perhaps a family has agreed to have some educational assessment or some developmental assessment for their little one and we get a whole lot of reports come back to school and there's a whole lot of diagnostic labels that are used in that report and sometimes at that point we very judgmentally and should not use um, a description of the family as perhaps being in denial that's really the wrong thing to say because what I'm hearing from you is that they're just perhaps interpreting that situation in, in a different way and using different language at that point to describe their child. Is that is Look, that right? I think it's a journey. It, it really is a journey, this process that a family will go through and it's going to kick in at different times for, for different families. Um, there will be that assessment process is really challenging. It's challenging. There is family history that has to be revealed during that assessment process, which can actually be quite triggering for some for some families as they go through. But no matter how they sort of hear that information, they will be at different stages. You will have families who are grieving, genuinely grieving, because they had a vision for what their child's life was going to look like, what their family life was going to look like, and this information may change that. They may be concerned about how their child, what their child's future will look like, how their family will 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 receive that information, how their friends will receive that information um, and the way they choose to do that. Um, so parents, some parents in that early stage will actually be grieving a life that they were planning and they need to give themselves time for that. Um, it's okay for, for them to be in that grief process and we just need to assure them that we're going to be with them, that we're alongside them and there are things for us to do and that nothing is a hurry. No, this is a journey. None of these assessments say you must do something tomorrow. They are a journey. We can always have a role in supporting that child while the family is working through that. But grief is different to denial and, and, and to anger and things like that. So there will be families who maybe weren't, weren't wanting to go and get the assessment in the first place and so they don't agree with what's there on the paper. And sometimes that bit of paper is actually wrong. Um, an assessment can only be measured on one given day. Um, but when you've got a family saying, I actually don't agree with what's there, we can we can try to explain the assessment report, but at the end of the day, they can have any feelings that they're going to have about that report. And so when they're in denial, it's about, again, it's listening. If they're not ready to hear what's on that report, it's, okay, here are the things that we're seeing in the classroom and here are the things that we're going to do about that, regardless what we call it. Regardless exactly. what we call it, exactly. we're still going to work forward. Um, the focus, if, if we keep our focus to the child and we keep our focus on how we're going to support them, whatever we call it, it will depend on what we're listening to the family telling us they want to call it. Mm -hmm. That report helps us as professionals 
know where we should be looking for strategies and which strategies will work better or which approaches will work better. But the way that we work in partnership with those families is by listening to them about where they're up to in their journey. Um, there are a whole range of feelings. Families feel guilty. Some families will feel like they've they've left it too late or that they did, that there was something that they've done that has contributed to this. It's there's a whole bunch of emotions that sit behind this um, for a family while they're working their way through. Our job is to listen to them, to hear what they're saying, where they're up to in their journey, tells us what, what language that we're using with them. But our job is actually to support their child. So we're, that report still helps us know what things we're going to do and we're still going to provide that advice. We're still going to keep them in the loop about the things that we're doing. But where a family is in their process gives us real insight into the language that we're going to use. We can't be another one bashing against the, the tide here, trying to, to get them to accept something when they're not ready for that. It, they will come around. They will come around. They will accept. They will be able to focus on the next steps. Um, but depending on a whole range of factors will depend on how, where they're up to and what they can do. You know, of course, if you're lucky enough to be the teacher in the year where acceptance, <laughs> you know, rich. where acceptance yep. has come, you are go, go, go. It's all systems yep. go. They're with you. They're alongside you. You're in a shared language and off you go. Um, but just just spare a moment's thought for, the, for your colleagues who came before you um, who were part of that process. Um, because those those feelings really can um, can can get in the way of being able to have an active dialogue. You, and so when you find that's the case, it's around keeping the families informed about the things that you're doing um, and the things that are working and you really sort of keep the specific language around what it's called um, sort of off the table until they're ready. Um, and I think... Um, like as we know, those different stages of grief that you've alluded to there, anger is one of them. And we do, when we do have a parent that or a family that is at that anger stage, it is really hard to to not take that personally. Do you have any tips about that? Because it's actually not about your teaching or who you are as a person, but it is a really challenging situation to not take that on board as something that you've done that has created that? Do you have any tips around Look, that? I, I am going to be a little bit zen here and say, you know, I think we always have to keep the child in our mind. And so when we have a family in front of us who is angry because we, from their point of view, it is something that we've done along the way um, that has not meant mm. that, that their child is learning it in, in a way that they would like. It is we have to keep that child literally in our mind while we're having that conversation because it's not our fault in the same way that it's not a family's fault that it's there. We need to have good faith in ourselves that we're doing all of the right things and we do need to use some language that tries to de-escalate that situation that, you know, I hear you're frustrated and I'm frustrated too. It's really about building that empathy and having that shared frustration about it. You know, I do understand that you're angry and I so wish that we could be getting more progress here or I really wish that we could be working together. Um, but you can't control what's happening at the other side of that table. It's sometimes it may be we might need to reschedule this conversation when things really are escalating a lot, you know, it is time, you know, that's not actually okay in the same way we wouldn't accept it from a child. Um, we actually wouldn't accept that as a parent. Um, 
I am very, look, as a human, I'm a, always a glass half full person. So even in those, in those heavy moments, it is, look, I hear your frustration and I am frustrated too. And these are the things that we're going to do next. It's always around the solutions of what's going to happen next for their child um, because it's actually not about the adults. You know, those meetings Mm. feel very much and, you know, I've sat at those tables and, you know, it does feel very personal, but it's not. That meeting is not the adults. Those meetings are actually all about the child and they're all about the child that you are doing all these things for. And by continuing to bring that conversation back to here's the next thing that we're going to do um, because there is no one thing. And I think, you know, when I talk earlier about shared language of, um, how we how we speak about those challenges. There's also a really shared language or a consistent language that the, that as a teaching community we need to help families know it isn't one meeting that fixes everything. It's not one strategy that will be the answer to everything. You are all on a journey. You're all on a journey, mm-hmm. and it's always just the next thing we're going to do because there there will not be one. There'll be many, um, and so it's always just forward planning. This is what we will do next. Mm. Um, with the, I often think too, just the importance of co-regulation for us, because sometimes when you are in a meeting with somebody that is really angry, it's very hard to not get angry yourself. And to, as you said, we're thinking through that Zen lens <laughs> and to keep yourself calm can sometimes be a really um, challenging, but incredibly important strategy in itself really isn't it at that kind of crucial moment where things are it escalating. Is. and you know I think if, if you've it, it, once you've had quite a number of those meetings you do have a range of phrases that you bring out or all on your own for yourself um, but if if you're new to this if you're new to these meetings and you find yourself getting flustered that's what your paper and pen is all about you know I, having a plan of what are you going to do if it escalates you know and and for some of you for some teachers they may cope with the anger better than the tears you know there there are there are a whole range of things that can happen during that meeting so I think as as teachers we do need to take care of ourselves and we need to think about what are our triggers what are the things that that escalate for us, you know, is it, you know, are we going to become very distressed around the tears? Is it around the, the silence? Are we not able to just give that minute of silence? So I think as a, as a teacher for, for those difficult conversations when you're sitting there with the parents in the room, a little bit of reflection beforehand to think, what are you, are you happy with the silence? For me, I actually notice I sort of start to sit forward as I'm starting to sort of get in that, that discussion. And I really do have to very consciously sit myself back in the chair so that I can get back into listening mode. It's not about me. That's literally what I'm saying in my head. This is not about me. This is all about this child. Um, and how do I help the family get to a place that we can look at the next thing. Um, so whatever sort of the cue you need on, on paper in front of you can really help you. Um, just know what your triggers are. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now, just I guess another couple of sort of scenarios that I'd love to explore with you. You touched on earlier about um, some families who do identify as being neurodivergent themselves or perhaps they don't or, the, or maybe they do but they haven't disclosed it with us but it's fairly clear in their communication style with you that they perhaps have a neurodivergent communication style. Is there anything different that you might consider when you are working with a family like that? Look, I'm going to say yes and no. So um, I'm going to give it sort of, 
yes, you do need to be very mindful of making sure that your message is heard and clear. And whilst whilst some families are going to need some massaging of that message differently, all families sitting there hearing that information, unless they are at full acceptance phase and they're completely in this with you, all of those families, whether they have um, particular learning styles or not, they're taking on a lot of information and they're emotional. And so their emotions often override. They may be perfectly, perfectly capable of running big companies and doing amazing things. But in that moment, they're not that person. In that moment, they're they're an emotional parent hearing things about their child that are difficult for them to hear. So yes, I'm going to talk about just a couple of tips I always use, but I actually use them for everyone. So because that emotions completely derail the most organised and proficient of humans when they're in that moment hearing us and hearing about how hard it is for their child in our classrooms each day. And so I think for all families, it's actually the way we communicate. We've got to have records, records that make sense for them. So whether that be picking a clear goal, you know, what are, what is the next thing we're not we're going to do? What are the next not what are the next five or ten? Not what is the whole year look? What is the next thing we're going to do? When are we going to agree to check in on that? And really checking in with the families around how do you want given how you would like to communicate too, but how do you want communication? Does that family need a text message once a week? Do they just need a post-it note inside the diary? Or is it an email on on a basis that works for you? So this is where the preparation needs to be. It's around, as a teacher, what are we happy to do and what's easy for us to be able to administer? Because it's not just one child that we're talking about here. It's not just one child in our classroom. It's lots of children in our classroom. But the way to engage with all of our families, but particularly those who are identifying that they have some concerns themselves, ask them. Same, ask them. How do you want to be, how do you want these records kept? Do you want maybe not a recording of the meeting, but do you want me to take down some notes? Is it just, and I can share my notes with you? Is it just the one goal that we need? Or do you want all the information? You know, I work with a family who wants all the research. I don't know whether they read it, but they want all of that detail. And so I know going into their meeting that I need four or five extra links that I give them to, to be able to have that information. So It is more challenging when we're sitting in front of someone whose difficulties are similar to what we're talking about um, in that meeting. And so it is that language, hear how they're speaking about themselves and their child, hear whether they're acknowledging that themselves and ask them how would they like both the meeting to take place, but also how do they want that record keeping? Um, Because that's the glue that lets you keep going. That one meeting is always emotional and you take a lot in, but it's what we do after that that ensures whether it's going to be successful. Mm. And if you do have a family that is more anxious, so you have your kind of set parent-teacher interviews, your ILP meetings, other meetings that are scheduled, and um, that's great. However, they are really anxious about their little ones, so they're also on your doorstep every day in the morning. Um, They're sending emails on a regular basis. Um, Is there any tips around supporting a family that is incredibly anxious? Agreed timeframes are really, think carefully as a teacher about how often 
are you happy to give that information and be really clear around it? You can't stop someone turning up on your doorstep in the morning. No. Um, but you can, you can in those meetings say, I'm going to send that off to you later today. As we've agreed, as we've agreed, this is the time I'm going to send it to you. Um, so being able to have, I think with those highly anxious parents, it is very much about this is the very next thing, not all of the things. This is the one thing that we are focused on. We're going to wait this long before we decide whether we pick it up again and I'm going to communicate with you this many times. So it is about having that nice and clear, keeping that record keeping, deciding how we're going to send that. And so when you're getting, when that's being encroached on, you know, when it's, oh, you're sending the weekly email, but you're also getting two others through the week, um, it's okay to reply to that and say, I'm going to I'm going to talk, respond to that on Friday as we've agreed. So on Friday, I'm going to send that to you. If you, so the, the, the glue, I suppose, for a highly anxious parent is that you are, you do exactly what you've said you've done. So if you if you commit to a weekly email or not really any more than that, but, you know, a weekly email or a fortnightly email, if you're committing to that, by hell or high water, you are completing that. Um, if you wake up that morning with the flu, you are still getting that email. You are still sending that email. <laughs> so you, yeah. if, you can, if you hold your ground then all the other things that come, the, the knocks on the door, the extra emails, the extra phone calls, it's I'm going to do that for you on Friday. Like we've agreed on Friday, I'm going to send that. Um, and if you sort of keep those boundaries tight and you're focusing on one skill at a time, that really will help build that trust um, because that anxiety will, will be very much driven by nervousness and probably past experiences of people not doing what they've said they're going to do. So it's important that you don't agree to something that you can't do. Um, just so one other group that we come across on the very odd occasion, but I am really keen on your thoughts, is a family that um, perhaps is quite unresponsive. So they don't attend parent-teacher interviews. Um, they don't respond to emails or if you leave a phone message, they perhaps don't re return your call. Um, perhaps they are not a family that do come to school to drop their little one off. So they're not around to sort of be able to incidentally touch base with on the school grounds. How do we connect with a family like that? Look, we, we keep going. We keep going is the answer. So as I've, you know, I've described families in different parts of their journey. So we don't know why. We won't know initially why they're not responding to us. So the first thing really is just that you have to keep trying. But when you're not getting, when you're not getting replies back, you, your communication style really needs to change so that it's not a call to say, can I speak to you? It's not an email to say, can we have a meeting? It's around, here are the things that we're doing. This is what we're seeing. If you can't get the two-way, we want two-way partnership, we want two-way communication. But if we can't get that initially, our communication needs to be about the things that we're doing, the things that we're doing, the successes that we're seeing. If we can't get a parent-teacher meeting, we still we still send the teacher meeting part to that family so they know what's happening because we don't know initially why they're not responding. If that family is scared to come into the school community, then by sending them the information that we would like to have in a face-to-face -face meeting, we're getting that information to them. They may have someone who's reading that information to them. We don't know what's 
happening in the background. So the first thing is, is just that you keep going, but you, if you're not getting that reply, your communication needs to change rather than that communication be to try and get the meeting and get the phone call and be really disappointed that you're not. That communication needs to be this is what we're seeing, this is what we're doing, this is what's working. We'd be really keen to talk to you about it, but you're still going to do it regardless. Um, I think one of the things to keep in mind is that you may be the teacher who is in that year where that family is first starting to hear that information and process that information and decide what it is they're going to do about that information. You need to keep going because there's going to be a colleague down the track who who starts to work with that family when they've heard all that information. And so it may feel, it, it will feel disappointing. It will feel frustrating because you're not getting a reply back. And we know, we know that partnership together, we know that those things happening from both home and in the school is going to be the most powerful, but it will still be powerful if it is only happening at school. It will still make a difference if it's only happening at school and we don't actually know that and so we can't really make that assumption that it's only happening at school. We don't know what's happening at home. We know there's a block to that help, to, to, to the communication more importantly, um, but we don't actually know what's happening at home. So keep communicating but start that communication being about what are, you, what are the things that are happening at school, what are the things that you're doing, what are the successes that you're having, and keep going, keep going. What you're hoping is that parent will start to engage, that that parent might start to come in to help you prepare resources for their child. They might come in for a coffee rather than a meeting. They might come in for a workshop about things that we could do rather than a meeting. You know, it's all this language. We really, we cannot underestimate the, the power that comes with the language that we use. So when we're asking for a meeting, um, it automatically escalates those emotions and feels really stressful. So even dialing down that emotion and just starting to sort of say, here are the things that we're doing. We'd love to talk to you about how that might be working at home um, or what else we could do or what, how else, what other information you've got for us. Um, all of those things would be helpful. So, um, don't give up. Don't give up. It will actually pay dividends down the track. It may not be in your year um, of teaching that child, but keep going and keep that family informed um, because they are going to be, at, the families will be at different stages. They may just not be ready to hear it or they may not be ready to have the two-way conversation yet. Um, and we just need to keep the, keep our families as informed as they possibly can be um, because actually in the end, it will be the family who holds all of that knowledge to then go and help everyone else and their child when they finish school. Mm. As you're talking about language, something that comes to mind are our families that are from a cultural or linguistically diverse background. Um, do you have any tips around uh, anything, I guess, in addition of, other than the obvious of using an interpreter if a family does not have a good grasp of English? Is there anything else that comes to mind in regards to working with families where English is not their first language? Yeah, look, I think when English is not the first language in that home, you're, apart, if you've got access to interpreters, that is fantastic. Um, but also being able to sort of capitalise on the use of, of, of technology. So even when we don't have, um, even when we don't have an interpreter, an email that you write in English, if it's an email that's editable, that family can put that 
the family is reading that through their translator anyway. Text messages that go to that family are much better than a phone call that they may not be able to understand from you. So utilising the incredible power of technology enables us to get that information to families um, so that they can then access that information in in their own language and sort of get get some more help from other family members around that. Um, yes, text messages, you know, we, we one of our offices is actually in an area where, where there is, that is the case, and text messages enable those families to reply to us straight away um, because they are not seeing that like, that message. Yes, it comes in, up in, in their English own language. Yeah. Them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it enables them to reply back to us and we're not getting it back in there. Like, like you know, it, it's an amazing, you know, Interpreters are fabulous for those meetings. Um, But sometimes you just want to have that little bit of ongoing conversation and that lets you do it. Mm. Now at Yarra, um, as you're aware, Sam, we are an ELC to Year 12 school. So we have families at very obviously different ends of the parenting journey. Are there different things to consider um, with our families that are down at that ELC end of the school versus families that are up at that kind of VCE or even, you know, middle secondary part of the school where where we know families don't come on site as often and um, you know are often very busy with their own work now and and what have you are there different sort of things we should be considering across that school spectrum yeah look I think there are because you and I mean you have an amazing advantage in that when you are discussing something with your early families you can show them the topic mm. of school, you get to show them that long period. You know, I, when I'm working with my tutoring students and they're, they're in that very early stage and they're trying to come to grips with this, I can hand on my heart tell them that their child is going to get through this, that their yeah, child they're will finish be okay. school, they're going to be okay. They will finish school. Yeah. They will go on to have the career that they want. And, you know, and I do in the, in sort of the first six months, you know, I've only had a few of them just, just in the last few weeks of families who finished school last year and they're replying going, oh, my God, it's so much easier now I'm finished school. And you're like, I I can't, I did tell you, I did tell you it would be <laughs> like that. Um, but, you know, it's very hard for them to see. So you do actually have an advantage in that you've got that whole spectrum. You can get them early and, and you can show them sort of ha- how successful it is. But I think the main difference is that when, and I'm going to start at, your, at the higher end uh, of your, your last few years of school here, once you are working with adolescent families and or the adolescent learners and their families, we just have to accept that there's way more baggage, that unless it's been fixed as such, there have been lots of failed or less than successful attempts to get help and the child is getting tired and sick of that and probably pushing back a little bit about doing that. And those families are worried not just about what's happening in school. The closer they're getting to finishing school, there is a whole set of new anxiety that kicks in here. They're worried what happens when the floor comes out and there's no more school and there's no more guaranteed place for their child to go every day and a structure that they've all been used to. So there's a whole range of new anxiety that is kicking in in those last few years of school. The kids are tired and the families have new worries, new worries that they might share with you, but you may not have solutions for because you're a school and and they sort of, your time will finish with them on their last day of school. So 
there is a difference in those families. It's not in your early years, it's setting them up. And in those later years, there's a new fear that comes in. So I think when you're working with families in those in those secondary years, the conversation will always be about how do we help your child with the things that they need right now. But the language for those families to help de-escalate their concerns is around what things are you working on that are building independence beyond school. Those families want to hear that there's hope beyond school, not just at school. So this is where the discussions around technology so that you're the children can keep working and that they'll be able to participate in class and they'll be able to go on and get jobs and do all of those things. Whereas in the early years, that approach that you've got with families is deep intervention, frequent intervention, go, 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 with all of the language caveats I've been talking about, but it is a, it is a different conversation. Although those adolescent learners still may require reteaching of things and supporting those areas the families what they really want to hear is whether their child's going to be okay when they finish school and so the for your upper learners what you're talking about is how do we get them ready for life not just for school how are we getting them ready for life um, and so technology is your way that you support them they're always going to have those things attached to their phone and so that does make that easy for them but the families have new anxiety that is different to the conversation you're having with your children who've just started school those learners it's about we're going to get it right we're going to get it right for them we're going to get make it easier for the long term your secondary parents they don't want to hear that we're going to make it easier for them in the long term because they've been with you all this time um, and so there is it is a different anxiety that kicks in um, in those last few years they're worried about school because they want their child to, to be okay at school but their their concerns are now much greater and if your language can change to be more inclusive around these things give independence, they'll give autonomy, your child will be able to use them beyond their schooling. It's not just about what we're doing at school. Um, that really does start to alleviate um, a lot of their concerns. I really loved how you touched on baggage as well. And I, I kind of think that if we're getting this right from the start, hopefully we don't have learners necessarily that are carrying that emotional baggage of school being challenging. And um, I guess at the core, families feeling like, like they can't trust um, a school and what have you. So if we get some of this stuff right really early, hopefully some of that is not necessarily there. <laughs> well, and it is. It's a, If you are keeping, you know, as a school community, I really encourage you to think about how you, how you want to approach these conversations, these long-term conversations with your families. You will have children who start in the early classes and are going to be right, right with you to the end. And if you, if they are learning differently and you are going to need to support them, it's a long time. Mm -hmm. And so if you set it up right at the beginning, you're using a shared language with the family and you're always talking about this is the next thing we will do. At no point are you setting yourselves up to fail. You're not setting yourself up with a promise that this will fix everything. You're saying this is the next thing we're going to do. There are lots of things we're doing for everybody and this is just the next thing for your child that we're going to try. We're going to everything can feel like an experiment. We're going to try it and then we're going to come back in and check in on it and see what we'll do next. And so that language means will mean less baggage at the upper upper end of high school because you didn't promise because no one can promise. We just can't. 
We don't know what will work. We, we have all of the best evidence doesn't tell us how it's going to work for that child and how it's going to be successful for them. And if we've been in step with those families saying this is the next thing that we're going to start looking at, then, then there will be less. There will Absolutely. be less. It will be viewed as less failed attempts, yeah. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, Sam. You are absolutely wonderful. And I'm just wondering for my last question, I know we've spoken about so much, but if you could condense everything down to a couple of really important take-home messages, what would it be? Look, I think it's we cannot do it alone. We just cannot. We are not alone in this. We are here with the, with the families all the way through. It is hard to work in partnership with families, but it is also wonderful as long as your focus is on the learner at all times, we can all do it. So even when the adults are feeling frustrated and the adults have a bunch of feelings about how how the, the infrastructure around the child is going, if our focus is on the learner, we're always going to get there. We're picking the next strategy to try whether that be a diagnosis named strategy that we're all working for or a more global strategy that works for everyone, it's always going to work when we are focused on the learner. We do our best to engage the families in a two-way dialogue, but when that's not there, we still live up with our part. We still give that information, give updates on how it's going, even if we're not getting anything back. If we aren't making assumptions about what we think is happening at home because we're focused on the learner, we keep that open dialogue possible. You may be the lucky teacher that gets it in your year, but if not, do it for the team and stay stay the course, stay the course, particularly at your school when you are working with these families for so long. You may not see the direct benefit in that year, but a future teacher is going to see that benefit um, because there is just no other way to do this but in partnership. Mm. We hope it's partnership with families, but it might be partnership with your colleagues um, in those early stages. Well said, Sam. You are fabulous. Thank you so, so much for sharing just your amazing expertise. It's been just such a really enlightening conversation and um, we're so grateful for you um, jumping on and having a chat um, on our school podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was great. And thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Uh, Keep an eye out for our next episode in Term 3. Bye. Thank you for tuning in and learning a thing or two about how to support all learners at our great school. Make sure you tune into the next episode. Go yeah!